My name is Johan Norberg and today is April 4th of 2018 and I'm here with Kim Washington at the Clinton Hill Library for the Our Streets, Our Stories project at the Brooklyn Public Library. So what's your Brooklyn story? Wow, what's my Brooklyn story? I was walking here and I grew up on Gates Avenue. I'm going to have to call my mom and ask her exactly what were the cross streets because in my mind, when I was approximately four, I remember a train that was near my house. Um, I'm an only child, so Brooklyn is where I found my first and second love. Uh, Brooklyn is where I made a lot of my lasting friendships, at least 30-year friends. No, I'm, let me correct that, at least 40-year friends because I'm still friends with people that I knew since I was eight and nine years old. And Brooklyn is the place where I felt safest. I was a latchkey kid because both my parents worked. So we moved from Gates Avenue to Pacific Street to Atlantic Plaza Towers. And that was a lovely development at the time. It was kind of sort of high end and the other building wasn't made. That was a development where there were two 24-story buildings with approximately 15 apartments on each floor. We had terraces, a private garage, a private pool, two basketball courts, our own supermarket, um, our own playground, our own picnic area, and several grassy places. So, it was a place where I could go outside and be with my friends for hours and hours and go home and feel safe because everything was encompassed. My school was, my public school was down the block. My junior high school was right next door. And I think because I was so intelligent, let me knock on wood, from what I heard, I was rambunctious and I did a lot of things I wasn't supposed to do, which led me to going to private school. So I went to private school from 7th grade to 12th grade. It was the Oakdale, it was the the Oakdale Preparatory School in Bayside, Queens. Okay. That was a school that had one 6th grade, 7th grade, 8th grade, and 9th grade, 10th grade, 11th grade, and 12th grade class. So it's approximately 150 students in the entire school. And there is where I kind of blossomed because I was challenged more. I was on the chess team, the tennis team. I was president of the school twice. I was a cheerleader. I was in the chorus. I learned how to play the piano. So that school challenged me like New York public schools did not. That being said, I graduated early. I graduated early and I went to the University of Denver I got a full scholarship. I was away. And everyone wanted to know, why are you going so far? You got accepted into John Jay. You got accepted into Brooklyn College. You got accepted into Hunter. I wanted to go away because I kind of wanted to be my own person. You know, when you're an only child and you grow up, there are no room for mistakes. I played all the sports, watched all the sports, because I wanted to be the son my dad never had. I had an obsessive thing with cleaning and cooking because I wanted to help my mom, who was a full-time woman worker at that time. And both my parents were married. So 
It wasn't a lot of us, but it was quite a many that grew up with two parents in the home. So we kind of had the best of both worlds, you know. We had the discipline, but we also had the soft hand. When I went to the University of Denver, I played softball. And I was on the tennis team, and I broke my thumb. I broke my thumb because I was the back catcher for my girls, for the college's softball team. And that kind of spurned me to not being with the best crowd. Um, I subsequently started hanging out off campus. My first semester was excellent. My second semester, eh, it was okay. Um, But since I graduated early, when I got out of school for Thanksgiving break, I was done. What, What I didn't tell you was, when I found out in my school that I could take my next year's courses the year previous, like when I was in the eighth grade, I took freshman classes, ninth grade, sophomore, sophomore, junior, junior, senior classes. When I was in the 12th grade, I only went to school from 9.30 to 11 o'clock because I had taken all those classes already, passed all my regents because you had to pass regents at that particular time, Spanish, math, science. I think it might have been my biology regents. And... I applied for colleges, and that's how I got the scholarship. Subsequently, my last year of high school, I just kind of was wild, you know, because I didn't have very much schooling to do, and my parents knew it, and I think that's why I went to the University of Denver. I kind of wanted to spread my wings a little bit more and then do some things. Subsequently, while I was at um, the University of Denver, I started to learn how to ski. I ended up being a two-quarter freshman, because when I left to go to school, it was New Year's Day, actually, because after Thanksgiving, I didn't have to go back to high school. So I went to the University of Denver, and I did two semesters. I came home that summer, and I went to Long Island University for their summer classes. So when I went back to the University of Denver in September, I was a full-fledged sophomore. That was when I was kind of at my wildest because I got an off-campus apartment. I didn't live in the suite. And my mother kept saying, why don't you live in the suite? I was an only child. I was kind of used to being by myself. So I, 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 I lived alone. And I did a lot of alone things. Parties, people spending the night, just a lot of stuff going on. And um, as I stated, I learned to ski. I met a lot of friends. A lot of friends. Can I mention their names? <laughs> yeah, if you want. Oh, um, Donna, Dana. I know their last names now because yeah. we're friends on state <laughs> Facebook. And they came from large families. And um, we were different nationalities, but we were friends. Yeah. You know, and I think everybody wanted to be friends with someone from New York, but I don't think it was that per se. They might, they, they just didn't know anyone from New York, yeah. you know. Um, and I went skiing. And I messed up my knee, and I ended up having to come home in a body cast. And that's when my parents moved. Well, I left to go to school in January, and they moved to New Jersey three months later. So I lived in Jersey, and I couldn't walk for about six months. Walk well, you know, because I still had... um, I was in a cast from my hip all the way down to my ankle, and then... The cast got smaller and smaller and smaller, and my mom was like, you got to go back to school. 
And of course, I went to John Jay. Okay. Because that's where I knew to go because I was already accepted. Yeah. And then um, I was with my son's father. And that put me back in Brooklyn. And um, where in Brooklyn did you go? East New York. East New York. East New York. He lived in Brownsville with his godparents, and then we moved with his family because they had a house in East New York. Which year? That had to have been 1986. Okay. No, 1985. Because my son was born in 1986. Yeah. And how was East New York? Oh, wow. East New York was. at that particular time, the crack ep- epidemic was just starting. So it was kind of, we lived in a residential area. So it was very, very different than a, than a more populated area. But you could see the differences. Yeah. You know, you could see more people in the street. You could go to a park and you could see crack vials on the floor, you know, on, you know, near the monkey bars, near the benches and things like that. But um, East New York is where my family started. East New York is where my family started. I grew up in the development, Atlantic Plaza Towers was in Ocean Hill, Brownsville. And I ended up in school in Bayside, Queens. Then I went to college in Denver, came back, went to John Jay, and my family started in East New York. My family started in East New York. And um, I guess based on our differences, that relationship ended. I moved back to Jersey with my parents, but I didn't stay there long because I'm a New Yorker, you know, a Brooklynite at heart. And I ended up living with my aunt in the Bronx, you know. So um, I've been in the Bronx for a while, but it's always been Brooklyn. You know, it's always been Brooklyn, and um, I graduated from John Jay early, primarily because my credits transferred, and while I was at John Jay, I started the Student Parents Association, because they had a daycare center, and I started the Dispute Resolution Club. So I've, I've always, let me knock on wood again, I've always been above average intelligence, so I knew exactly what was required at that particular time. And um, I've gone into social work. Well, what, well, what, what I would consider upper level case management. You know what I mean? Because since I've graduated from John Jay, I went to Fordham University and I got a master's in education because I wanted my son and I to have the same holiday schedule, same time off because I didn't want him with a babysitter. But as an only child, my son became the parents the son that my parents never had. So I was able to work two jobs, stay in school, get a lot of certifications, which I did. Um, In the process of getting my um, master's in education from Fordham, I did a lot of work within the foster care system. Abbott House, Family Support System, New York Foundling, Graham Wyndham, and I was a social worker for quite some time working with parents and foster parents who were raising therapeutic children. And therapeutic were children with special needs because they were born with more deficiencies because they had one or more parent that might have been utilizing substances so they didn't develop appropriately. 
I got promoted to the Therapeutic Force to Boarding Home Supervisor at Graham Wyndham. And in the process of doing that job, I worked with a lot of birth parents who I needed to refer to substance abuse treatment programs based on what the court action summary mandated for them to do, for them not to lose their parental rights. Um, after doing that about three years, the state came in and they said, we want supervisors to have MSWs. They gave us three months. I subsequently lost that job. And in the process of looking for other jobs, I said, you know what? I was looking for supervisory assistant director, director's positions, and I saw that Oh, I could get one of those positions with a KSAC because I already had the master's in education. Mm. Subsequently, when I got my KSAC, I only needed 85 hours in pharmacology out of the 350 core hours that's required. And when I got my KSAC and I was sitting down doing individual group sessions, assessments, treatment plans, um, facilitating groups, it made me realize that drugs are the symptom of a deeper problem and you really can't pick your parents. So... Because I knew some part of the substance use, I realized that the person sitting on the opposite chair from me, with me trying to assist, might have been self-medicating. And there was some mental health issues going on based on childhood anxiety and trauma. And that's what spurred me forward to get a master's in mental health. So, in the process of doing that, it made me understand symptomology, diagnosis, medication treatment, and that's how I'm becoming, well, that's what made me be a therapist. So, having done that, I'm a PhD candidate for the social welfare program because I'm looking at childhood trauma, anxiety, and how that plays a role on your development and the choices that you make based on your family core. So, when I saw the oral history, I was like, wow, <laughs> I've learned a lot in Brooklyn. Yeah, I've yeah. grown from Brooklyn. Yeah. And Brooklyn has helped me to make the choices that I have. Yeah. So, so you see in Brooklyn changing? Oh, my gosh. Uh, would you describe this? Oh, wow. <laughs> it's funny that you said that. Yeah. Um, the development that I lived in, it's very, very diversified now. All the neighborhoods that I hung out in, gentrification is really, really key. Brooklyn used to be um, where I hung out, grew up, and had friends and family. used to be a very um, Afrocentric environment. Now, it's more diverse than ever with, um, I would say, a Caucasian population, a Hispanic population, an Indian population. Indian meaning more Pakistani. I'm not too sure if Muslims fit into that, but I see women with the burqas. Um, yeah, Brooklyn has changed. And I can't say it's been for the worst. You know, um, there were a lot of neighborhoods that had been dilapidated over time, and when I go back now, they're built up. There are houses there, stores. Um, it's just very, very different. It's very, very different. But I think it's a good difference. How was it raising a child in, uh, in East New York? Well, that's the thing. Um, because my son's father was one of nine children, I always had a babysitter. Yeah. And I lived in the house with his maternal aunt. 
So, yeah. you know, I had help. I, you know what I had? I had like Southern help, you know, because when, you, when you're raised in the South, you have your grandma, your aunties, your mom, and then parents are together, you know. So you have your, the father's side of the family, and that's kind of what I had in New York. It wasn't polarizing. I wasn't alone. And I had a real nuclear support system. And then me being an only child, my parents were always available. You know? Yeah. My parent, my mother had my son every weekend. I would imagine from the time he was nine months until he was probably 11. Yeah. So did you feel connected to the community? Oh, for this, certain. Yeah. I guess that's where the word safe comes in. Yeah. Um, you asked me prior to this if there were three words that I could describe, and I picked yeah. love, friendship, and safety. Brooklyn was one of those places where, as I stated, I was a latchkey kid. I had my house key around my neck. We only had one lock on the door. Um, everybody knew me. They knew my parents. I knew everybody in my community. I could go outside. I could go downtown. I could go to 42nd Street, which is where I snuck to go to the movies. I could come back home at 11 o'clock and feel safe. The, it, the predatory environment that we have now and people missing on milk cartons, I didn't grow up with that. I didn't grow up with that. So Brooklyn was a place where I felt extremely safe all times of the night, any day of the week. It was a, it was a, it was a safe environment for me. Bushwick, East New York, Ocean Hill, Brownsville, Fort Greene were the places that I hung out because that's where my friends and family were. And you could go outside and play with anybody and, you know, everybody was kind of like family, you know. Um, we would fib and say, oh, this is my cousin, this is my cousin, and you know what I'm saying? You had extended family everywhere, but they were just people that you knew, that you got along with, that your mom and dad knew, you know. So you just picked family. You took family. And me, personally, I'm one of 63 grandchildren. I just happen to be an only child. You know? Um, do you have any advice for people coming to Brooklyn now. So let me just tell you this. Brooklyn is notorious for their do or die attitude. You know, like you don't mess with somebody from Brooklyn. We take no crap from anybody. At the end of the day, just come to Brooklyn and be yourself. You know what I mean? You're moving here and obviously you can afford the you can afford the rents. You like the neighborhood. Transportation is fine. Schools are fine. Um obviously libraries are still full with children. So you come to Brooklyn and you just live your life. You know what I mean? Um, the only thing I could probably say is that we're living in a different world. You can't really look at people the wrong way. Um, you can't put yourself in harm's way. So come to Brooklyn and just stay safe. You know? Yeah. Live your life. Stay safe. I can't say don't help people. But at the end of the day, it is what it is. Yeah. You know? It's not like in the 80s. You know, early 70s, mid-70s. It's not the same. What uh, do you want to say to future generations? Wow. Represent Brooklyn well. Grow internally, mm -hmm. you know. Um, 
life starts to look a little different when you're in your late teens. You're invincible. You can conquer the world. You can do whatever you want. You get to be in your 20s and you beat down a little bit. You know, you're you're on your own. You're hopefully finished high school and college. You might have one child that you're raising. I don't know if you're still with the dad. Not everyone gets married because times have changed. Um, you get into your 30s and you look at life a little differently because now you have children and other people that are dependent upon you. So our future generations, they're very different. Like a nine, I was very responsible at 19. You know, it was about conquering the world. What am I going to do? How am I going to be a success? That kind of thing. Um, one of the ideal things was to get a city job and, you know, maintain and have that security, but you don't really have that now. So when you're future generations 19, just actually be a part of the world. Understand how important the environment is. Get involved into politics. Your voice matters. You are important. You're not just a number. In your 20s, you have to actually do something. Life now where we're living in the new millennium or going into 2020, it's about action. You have to do something, you know, because a lot of generations previous you paved the groundwork. You know, they've, they've paved the tolls in order for you to walk across some of these bridges that you can't burn and forget about, you know. So get involved. Put some action in. Um. Is there anything else you want to talk about before we... <laughs> wow, we've covered everything. I, I've, I've spoken about the span of my life. Um, just recently, just recently, what I'm realizing is life is, you know, you get, you get over 45 and life seems a little more vulnerable because everything comes full circle. My dad just passed away May 25th of 2017. And I can say that and not be weepy and not have my voice crack because he lived a good life. I didn't think he would pass away at 77 years old, but he had a horrible bout with cancer. And the funny thing about that is he stopped smoking over 40 years ago. You know what I mean? He got diagnosed on Easter and I guess everything came full circle because he came home on Good Friday the following year and then he pa he went back into the hospital on Easter. So he got diagnosed Easter of 2016 and went back into the hospital Easter of 2017. I had never dealt with a cancer situation except for my cousin who was 47 at the time and she had a, she chose to have a double mastectomy. She lived in the South, I lived in the North, we only communicated over the phone. So I didn't know the ramifications of what cancer could actually do. Subsequently, when my dad got diagnosed, I just figured radiation chemotherapy, is that what you guys said? Okay. And then I didn't Google it, I didn't do anything. I kind of just went with the flow, let the universe do what it does. And then the cancer had become more aggressive with the chemotherapy and the radiation. And my dad had to have a drastic 14-hour surgery. Now, let me tell you this. I'm going to digress for a moment. My dad called me Easter of 2016. My nickname was Moselle. He said, hey, Mo, I just was calling to chat you up a little bit because it's Easter. I'll call you a little later. That was about 3.30 in the afternoon, me being the person that I am. I went to my job. I was the assistant director at a nursing home to take them some candy for Easter because the elevator wasn't working. 
I didn't hear that message. About 5.30 on my way out, I didn't get paid for those two hours on Easter, but that was just something I was going to do. I was going to my aunt's house for dinner, and my mom called. I didn't get this call either. Kim, we're taking Frank to the emergency room. He's throwing up blood. So I want to tell you, that was the that was the last message I heard from my dad. I still have it on his phone and mine. And the last time I heard my dad's voice was April 2nd of 2016. Because of where the cancer was located in his throat, they thought that he would not be able to breathe, so they gave him a trach. So my dad didn't eat from April 2nd of 2016 until when he passed, May 25th. So it makes me look at life a little differently. You know what I mean? It makes me see how vulnerable we are as people. So since that time, I stopped eating meat. I stopped, let me just say this. I stopped eating everything that has a face that can give birth or that excretes. You know what I mean? So I'm kind of sort of like a vegan. But every once in a while, I will eat a piece of salmon. You know? So, um, I don't know. I guess in ending, life is what you make it. And I think you peace of mind and happiness are paramount. And what you put out in the universe is exactly what you get back. So it pays to be positive. Okay, maybe that's uh, the final words. Exactly. So thank you so much on behalf of the Brooklyn Public Library. And uh, have a great day. You do the same. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks. That was easy enough.